Hello and welcome to the August edition of The Jewish Views in association with JW3. I'm Phil Dave and coming up I'll be finding out exactly what the summer months have in store for us here at JW3. I'm Clive Rosen and I'll be speaking to David Siegel and he'll be telling us about touring in Israel. I'm Tony Honigberg and I'll be speaking to comedian James Harris about his forthcoming show at the Camden Fringe called The Palace of Earthly Delights. And I'm Kate Fulton and I've got the pleasure of speaking to Alexander Bermange about his new show in Edinburgh. And we'll also have our rabbinic thought for the month courtesy of Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green United Synagogue. But before all of that, with a roundup of the main news stories from the past month, I'm Vivian Krieger. The Board of Deputies has welcomed Boris Johnson's new cabinet, saying there are many firm friends of the Jewish community among them. Mr Johnson started a complete reorganisation of Theresa May's cabinet on the day he became Prime Minister, with appointments including Dominic Raab as Foreign Secretary. Mr Raab is the son of a Jewish refugee who fled the Nazis. Grant Shapps is the new Transport Secretary. He has previously said he and his wife keep a kosher home. A Labour councillor who was cleared by the party of anti-Semitism charges has said he was the victim of a smear. Sam Gorst, who branded Jewish MP Luciana Berger as a traitor and a backstabber on social media, claimed he'd simply been expressing his concern about, quote, the heinous crimes of the Israeli government. Mr Gorst won a seat on Liverpool City Council by just 70 votes in May, after which, and while he was still under investigation, Jeremy Corbyn sent his warmest congratulations. The Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas has once again said his government will terminate dealings with Israel. It comes after Israel demolished Palestinian buildings built without permission on the edge of Jerusalem. Approval for the demolition was given by the Israeli Supreme Court. Abbas said a committee would be formed to work out how to implement the decision. It's been revealed that the Prince of Wales is to be patron of the Bevismark Synagogue Appeal, which will raise funds for the development of the Grade 1 listed building, the oldest synagogue still in continuous use in Europe. There's to be a new religious, educational and cultural centre, and the fabric of the 300-year-old synagogue will be protected. Prince Charles, a known friend of the Jewish community, was apparently quick to accept the invitation. And finally, prisons inspectors in Scotland are demanding an urgent investigation after a surge in prisoners who are identifying as Jewish in order to receive kosher food, which is thought to be better quality than standard meals. But it has led to skyrocketing food budgets. In 2016, only nine inmates across Scotland identified as Jewish. But now there are a 100 offenders just in HMP Edinburgh who are on a strictly kosher diet. That's the news roundup this month. Viv, thank you very much indeed. Well, welcome along to this August edition of The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Just in case you have picked up on any of the background noise that you might be hearing through this and thinking, hang on a second, this is a considerably noisier episode of The Jewish Views than we normally hear. It's because we are sitting on the beachfront. Oh, yes. Well... You've got to use your imagination, but we are sitting on the beachfront. It's the beach at JW3. It's currently absolutely buzzing with families and children and all having a whale of a time, really, and just, I suppose, enjoying their summer holidays. But it's rather splendid. Brilliant. Here. Actually, Phil, I don't know where you're sitting, but I think I'm in Tel Aviv. There's the most amazing backdrop. Please tell me it is Tel Aviv. <laughs> it and is I'm not. Tel Aviv. Yeah, it is. Yeah, it is <laughs> <laughs> it's so awkward. <laughs> it's, it really feels like I'm on holiday. I'm sitting here in a summer dress. 
outside with recording. Fabulous. Lovely idea, isn't it? But to be fair, I do think I can understand why you're questioning whether or not that was the Tel Aviv backdrop, because actually I think it's been even more built up since Mm. that photo was taken. And that's probably the reason why. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, it's around this time of year that much of the UK, even the world actually, descend on the capital of Scotland for the annual Edinburgh Festival. Our next guest will be there with a show entitled I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical. Arguably, his life is like a musical. He's a composer by trade and quite a successful one as well. Welcome, Alexander Bermange, to JW3. Hello, thank you so much for having me. That's all right. So you're, you're a composer and a lyricist. I am, for my sins. I'm a man of music and words. A music, and how did you, when did you realise that? How did you know you were a man of music and words? Well, it was pretty much as soon as my parents encouraged me to sit down at a piano and start taking piano lessons at school. And although I was a fairly diligent pupil, if I say so myself, I was actually equally interested in trying to create my own music as I was in getting to replicate the works of the great classical masters that my piano teachers were desperately trying to get me to do. And so there was always this creative impulse in me that seemed to always want to create something new, something original, not just perform existing works, and that stayed with me. So what was your fir- the first thing you composed? Oh, I couldn't even tell you the first thing I composed. I mean, it was, it was awful. I mean, I like to think it's, it's progressed a bit since then. But no, it was just kind of very, very simple songs that, as I say, are probably largely unlistenable to now. But just you know, short songs that were probably very, very heavily influenced, or should I say borrowed from whatever I was listening at the time until I gradually found my own voice. Uh, tell us a little bit about then your voice. What, how would you describe what you do and, and your work? Well, it depends very much on the project. Taking my work as a whole, it's largely fallen into two categories. One has been writing musicals for the stage, and the other has been writing comedic songs for BBC Radio 4 or the BBC World Service or for performance by others. And this particular show, I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical, grew out of both of those areas. I'd never really come up with something which truly combined both parts of my writing. And it was purely born out of the desire to write something about the world of musical theatre, but in a comedic vein. Right. A little bit like, I mean, I don't know because I haven't seen the show yet. You're going to tell me a bit more about it. The, the, The play that goes wrong. Kind of, kind of. I mean, really, I suppose the main difference is that the play that goes wrong, partly it's obviously about plays rather than musicals, and partly you're watching what goes on on stage, whereas I Wish My Life Like a Musical is all about everything that goes on behind the scenes. So it's really trying to show the audience everything they could want to know about being a musical theatre performer if only there were any who would dare to admit it. So the endless auditioning, the exhausting dance routines, the understudying, the onstage kisses, the divas, the crazy fans, all those aspects that people tend not to think about while they're watching a performer on stage, but which truly go on behind the scenes. They do, but but I I guess that you don't want your audience to be thinking about the auditions and the and the embarrassment and the while they're watching is you want them to lose themselves well yeah in a conventional show that's absolutely right but one of the things which inspired the show was i discovered there is this deep rooted fascination amongst theatre goers in the lives of musical theatre performers and i discovered this a couple of years ago when something of mine was performed on a cruise and when i was on board the ship of an evening 
dining with the cast, it was remarkable how the other passengers would gravitate towards our table and ply our company with all kinds of questions about their day-to-day -day lives and they were they were genuinely surprised to hear that they weren't chauffeured from their front door to the stage door that when they went on tours with shows they weren't put up in five-star hotels all around the country and what really appealed to me was writing something which could dispel some of those myths but in a very very comedic light and reveal some of the truths that go on but which are largely unspoken and as a composer, the really tempting thing was to write something which could have quite a lot of musical humour in it as well. Mm. So although you absolutely don't have to be a musical theatre aficionado to enjoy the show, if you are, you will be richly rewarded because what we've done with the music, although it's entirely original, there are lots of what one might term Easter eggs, lots of well-known quotes from famous musical theatre songs that are relevant to the scenario that we're Sort of a depicting. wink towards them Absolutely. and a nod. Yes, so, for lovely. example, in our opening number, which is called The Opening Number, it's an entirely original song all about what it's like for a performer to do an opening number. And if you listen very carefully, the music is entirely made up of tiny fragments of well-known opening That's numbers. That's so clever. So it's a lot of fun. It's wow. a lot of fun. Because there is, there is a need for us somehow. I mean, television has sort of morphed into, into knowing. Everybody wants to be the expert on what's gone on behind the scenes. Completely. And have, that, have that bit of sort of private knowledge of someone's life or someone's background. Totally, and that's that's completely what we wanted to present with the show. And what's great for our cast is we've got four artists who are regulars of the West End stage. They've been in more shows than I've had salt beef sandwiches. And so they are for the first time, having been in shows like Les Miserables, like Mamma Mia, like 42nd Street, and playing these other characters, they're now kind of playing versions of themselves. So they're having a lot of fun yes. because they're, they're kind of laying themselves bare. Because it's all based on truth, obviously because it's all comedic. It's an exaggerated version of the truth, but it's absolutely having its basis in truth. What's it actually like at Edinburgh? I mean, you know, from being on the stage at Les Mis, I mean, to, even if you don't have your chauffeur-driven limo, presumably you have some sort of backstage. Do you have any of this at, at Edinburgh? Yeah, I mean, Edinburgh is, is very much more about mucking in mm. than performing in the West End. It's very much about everyone does a little bit of everything. You know, even when John Malkovich was performing in Edinburgh not long ago, he was out there flyering. So it's, it's very, very different to performing in the West End. But what we were delighted to discover which we hadn't really reckoned on, is that it's on Edinburgh is on a lot of West End performers' bucket lists. It's one of those things, there's nothing like it. Every passionate theatre-goer in the world, it seems, seems to descend upon Edinburgh. You've got a hungry audience. There's tons of other shows that you can go and see because you've got shows all the way throughout the day. So even though our cast is comprised of people who are used to playing in 2,000-seaters, the prospect for them of performing something much more intimate and you know being in a smaller dressing room is very appealing because it's just a completely different kind of experience it's a show which is meant to be intimate to have four performers and a piano and to be funny and the audience can really see the sweat on their brows rather than being stuck at the back of the balcony peering through which binoculars. Which is exactly what we're seeing when, it, when it's your life in the, as, as a musical. Of course. And do you have plans to take it afterwards? All being well. Well, the, the reason it's, it's going to Edinburgh in the first place is it had two very successful runs in London last year. Award-winning runs, I should actually say, which was terrific for the entire team. And so, yes, I mean, what is delightful is that certainly in the last few weeks, my inbox has started to fill up with emails from 
people in the business who heard about it in London, didn't get to see it, but really want to try and get to see it in, in Edinburgh, which is another very exciting thing about the festival, because that's where not only the theatre fans descend, but the theatre industry. So absolutely, the idea in Edinburgh is to create a production that is absolutely as good as it can be for itself. It, we're not doing it as a springboard, we're not doing it as a showcase, we're doing it as a show that will work in Edinburgh. And if it happens to lead to anything else, then that would just be the, the icing on the cake. So before we go, I want to hear when the dates are, how we can get tickets and any websites. Here we go. So the show is called I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical, running from the 31st of July to the 26th of August at the Underbelly in Bristow Square in Edinburgh. To find out more or to book tickets, you can go to edfringe.com. That's E-D-F-R-I-N-G-E.com. Type in I wish my life were like a musical. You'll get all the details. Or for those on Twitter, you can go to at like a musical. Excellent. Good luck with that. Thank you so much for having me. Lovely to be here. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. Now, around this time of the show, we like to look at some of the things happening here at our host site, JW3. And being the summer months, as we've already established, for being in the great outdoors, you'd be forgiven for thinking that potentially there's not a lot happening here because, let's be honest, most of the country seems to shut down over summer. Oh no, that is not the case here. To tell us more, because there is actually more going on than you may realise, we're joined by Natalie Berger, who is the Head of Community Programming here at JW3. Natalie, welcome to this episode of The Jewish Views. I suppose... It could be very easy for me to wind you up and watch you go, as it were, by just simply saying, well, what's on this summer at JW3? But I suppose, in particular, we need to expel the myth because at the moment we are obviously in the peak of summer when we record Mm -hmm. this programme and it appears to be a hive of activity so much so that I would actually think that I'm forgiven for thinking that it's busier than ever today. So JW3 clearly has a lot going for it over the summer months. We do, we do. That's right. Well, we're here on the beach and as you can see, the beach is a hive of activity. We've got what's wonderful about the beach is that it brings in children from all over and they can get that little bit of sand and a little bit of water right here in Hampstead with a beautiful Tel Aviv backdrop and it's a great great to see so many kids coming and enjoying. And what's quite nice about this as well is that this is a chance and I don't mean this sort of in a disparaging way or in a sort of a looking down way but for those that we mustn't take for granted that people can't always afford family holidays okay that's just a fact Mm -hmm. that they can't do that it's very expensive especially in the summer months and what's nice about this is if families want to give their child that sort of holiday experience of say I don't know going to Tel Aviv because that is the backdrop this is the mm. ideal opportunity for it. It's perfect. You, well, I mean, you can just see there's sandcastles being built. There's a kosher restaurant so they can get all their kosher snacks here. When it's too hot, we can take advantage of our aircon cinema, really nice, cosy cinema, 60 people. And we've got this summer, we've got Lion King and uh, Toy Story 4 showing. Fantastic. So for any Disney fans out there, they are obviously the hot picks of the mm. summer months. And I have to vouch for, and I'm not being paid to say this, so I'm just going to say it anyway. I did 
before we recorded this programme in the great outdoors here, went into the auditorium, not the cinema, but in the auditorium itself, the big one, and the air conditioning was full blast in there and it was absolute bliss. It was a little that, bit like being in a refrigerator. That is true. It is true. It's the secret place to go for, for meetings when you're too hot. Oh, I, um, so, I think that what we need to also do as well, though, is just unpick, because it might not necessarily be from what I've seen under the arts and culture section so much, yeah. stuff happening here at JW3 over the summer, but there's lots of things like classes and community yes. events, aren't there? So the, the big class and the the big push is really is for our modern Hebrew summer Olpan and those are classes going on we've got 40 hours of expert Hebrew tuition so that you can learn and get a grasp of of Hebrew right well in that case we're obviously all aware of some of the activities that go on the classes the community events but what would you say is a personal highlight? The personal highlight has got to be, throughout the summer particularly, is our summer camp. This year we're run in conjunction with a theatre production company called Infinite Jest. And it's led by experts in their fields. They're, you know, children can come along, it's for ages 5 to 11. And they can come along and get that expert tuition. It could be beatboxing, it could be slapstick comedy. It's great. And the children who come, because we, we ran a similar one in May for half term, they adore it. They have a great time. It's really good fun. And they come away with a skill, which is invaluable. Absolutely. Now, speaking of skills, what is, would you say, the big series? Because JW3 always has a series of events as well normally mm. speaking we and do. i suspect the summer is no exception of course of course no exception well this year we have um and the coming back to return because they had such a fantastic success last year is mind sports olympiad well i'm delighted that you mentioned the mind sports olympiad because by a curious coincidence our next guest here on the jewish views for this month is the organizer behind said event Eitan ilfeld joins us on the jewish views Eitan, welcome. Hi, Phil. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, it's a pleasure for us to have you here because you're going to tell us a little bit about the the mind field that is the Mind Sports Olympiad because this is quite a big event. True. So it is, I it guess is. for anyone who's not really familiar, maybe you'd care to summarize exactly what it is. Sure. So the Mind Sports Olympiad is a week-long festival and tournament where we feature over 70 different events. It's open to anyone and, and all ages. And we I'd also like to reassure people, we're not going to list those 70 now, don't worry. No, that's a lot of events. Yeah. But we will summarize and highlight a few. And, and basically, it's a chance to, to share your love of board games. We've got classic games like Scrabble and Monopoly, and then uh, newer games like the latest Euro games from Catan to Ticket to Ride to Carcassonne, and, and Azul is a new one with, which people are very excited about. I'm, I'm looking at Clive, who's looking rather shell-shocked, because I don't think he's heard of those I haven't heard of them either. Clive, no, we're getting a definite no from that. So, okay, so I'll tell you what, rather than sort of maybe us trying to unpick some of the games, of course, some of us heard of Monopoly and Scrabble, I hope. In fact, actually, useless fact of the month is that I actually collect Monopoly boards. There wow, you go. cool. Mm. So, there you have it. But have, I, what, have you got a frozen one? Do you know what? I, unless I stick it in the freezer, no, I haven't. <laughs> so, but no, I have not got a frozen one. I have got many others, though. In fact, actually, the, the tally the last time I counted, I think, was something ridiculous, like 110 boards. Wow, anyway. you, you, you might be able to compete with the Monopoly organizer, Joseph Collar, who's also on uh, Gogglebox. He, oh. uh, he's got, I think, also around 200, uh, and he runs the event and always wears a special Monopoly suit that he's uh, <laughs> custom-made. So that is quite a cool event to come in and compete in. By the way, all the events take place between the 18th and the 26th of August. I suppose it would be remiss, though, not to mention 
how it all began and where it all began. Where did this idea start? It all started in the 90s. So I've actually, this will, this will be the 10th one that I'm organizing and the, uh, the sixth Mind Sports Olympiad at JW3, which has been a great partnership. Way before I moved here, as you can tell by my accent, I'm, I'm American, Israeli-American. You wouldn't hear the Israeli part, but the American part, certainly. But 1997 was the, the first Mind Sports Olympiad. I think that was at uh, Royal Albert Festival Hall. It was quite, quite a big event, huge sponsorship. The three founders, one is Raymond Keane, who's a chess grandmaster. The other is Tony Buzan, who invented mind mapping. Uh, you might have heard of that. He passed away this year. And then uh, another chess master, David Levy, they created the event. So where does your involvement come into it then? <laughs> I came as a player in 2007. And then Are you I, a champion? I won sir, a, a good amount of chess events. I, I am a, a U.S. chess master and also played in the Israeli National uh, League as well. So I'm quite a, a competitive chess player. I'll, I'll tell you in a bit about a, a quirky chess variant that I invented as well that's going to take place during the Mind Sports Olympiad. But basically, uh, I joined as a player and then I, I volunteered. And then uh, when the old guard felt it was time for them to retire, I, I took over the company. So now I, I own the event and I've been organizing it, as I said, for this will be the, the 10th year. So I, I love it. It's the highlight of my year. I mean, the rest of the, the time I'm, I'm in publishing. That's a whole other business. But I love board games and I love getting people to think and to play and to learn new games. And, and what's really cool about the Mind Sports Center that's different from other events, we want to encourage people not just to come and try one game, but also to learn more and try other games. So when I came in 2007, I competed in chess, but then I saw these other games and I learned them and I kept coming back and, and then playing lots of games. So we'll actually have a free learn to play room uh, in learning room one. People can come and learn games, play for fun. And we want to encourage people to try new things. That's what the Mind Sports Olympiad is all about. Well, of course, the other thing as well is in this day and age, people don't often necessarily think of turning to board games for entertainment. So that's, of course, something else that this could very easily do. You mentioned a very quirky chess event. We can't let that go. And sure. we're rapidly running out of time. So let's go for this. The quirky chess event. What sure. Is well, this is the only one that's not taking place at JW3 because there's no swimming pool. Oh. Uh, <laughs> You'd be forgiven for thinking that if you look just behind us. But even wow, so, yeah. Sure. There's a, there's appreciate a that's kids, more of a paddling uh, pool. Yes, and, uh, thing. Some, uh, some youths who don't quite know boundaries. <laughs> but let's not worry about that. That's right. So I invented a thing called diving chess, which is where we play chess uh, with the board uh, submerged at the bottom of a swimming pool and instead of using a chess clock you can think for as long as you hold your breath for each move wow. so so a player goes down makes a move after he or she comes up the other player has to go down and they have to make a move before they re-emerge that's a great event but let me just tell you a few other things before we wrap up that we've got that are i think really amazing we've got the creative thinking world championship we've got a mental calculations world championship we've got games like backgammon we've even produced a movie about the event, a documentary that's going to premiere at JW3 on August 6th at 9 p.m. And we'll have a second screening later in the month called Pentamine, the Ultimate Mind Sports Championship. So I encourage people to come and see that. There's there so much to learn, so I'm much to play. I'm afraid we're flat out of time. I'm so sorry because we, do got to, we have got to try and squeeze in our other guests as well. <laughs> but I must say, just finally, where can people go if they want more details? So msoworld.com is, is our website. And, and like I said, it's, uh, it's open to anyone. And get your tickets while there's space available. Itan Ilfield, thank you very much indeed for that. And Natalie, if people want more information about what's on over the summer at JW3, they go to www.jw3.org.uk. Thank you both very much indeed thank for you. joining us on this thank month's you. edition of The Jewish Views. Thank yes. you. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with JW3. 
Well, we've heard about the Edinburgh Fringe, but what about London's very own fringe? Yes, we do have one, and it's called the Camden Fringe. It's on now until the 25th of August, and our next guest will be one of the many performers. James Harris is a comedian and a 2017 contestant of the Jewish Comedian of the Year. He's taking his show, The Palace of Earthly Delights, to the Camden Comedy Club on the 19th and 20th of August, and I'm delighted to say he joins me now. Hello there. Hello, James. Just tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I'm, uh, I'm 36 years old, from Nottingham, and I've been performing comedy for a very long time. I started, first time I did a gig with my own material, I was 17. I'd done Woody Allen's material before when I was 13, which went much better than my material, but uh, he'd already done it. So I, I wrote my own jokes. When I was 17, I entered a competition called So You Think You're Funny, which is one of the biggest stand-up comedy competitions. And I got to the semi-finals of that, and I've never stopped, really. So I'm hoping for some kind of persistence or participation award if I, if I keep going. In terms of a Jewish connection, I wasn't brought up in the Jewish religion, but right. I would say I was brought up culturally Jewish, if that makes any sense. My mother's side of the family are Belgian Jews. Right. But we weren't brought up with any religion, and my dad is a Welsh agnostic. You've got a good round upbringing there, yeah, it sounds Yeah, and, like. and I've, I've had my periods of evangelical Christianity, hardcore atheism, and now I'm just generally sort of tolerant. What led <laughs> so, you to the Jewish scene then, in that case? Well... I'm, I'm very, very interested in my Jewish heritage. My granddad was a Holocaust survivor. He was pretty much the only one of his family who made it out of Belgium. His mother actually died in hiding. A lot of the rest of his family ended up in the camp. So that's a, that's a big legacy to have in your family anyway. And I think, I think I feel a real affinity to kind of, to Jewish humor. The Marx Brothers were the, the comedians when I was, when I was younger. I just thought that I thought they were the ultimate in terms of a group of comedians working together and all being really funny. And I still think they set a, a standard as a troupe, which I don't think very, very few groups have ever come near that. So I've got that seam and I love, I love Jewish humor and I love that side. So I was, I was very pleased to be in, in Jewish Comedian of the Year. And yeah, so... I, well, technically, you are Jewish because your mother is Jewish. Well, so yeah, but my mother wasn't. My mother wasn't brought up with any. No, with you brought up, but, but she was born religion. Born as uh, well. Jewish no, her person. mother was not mother Jewish, wasn't Jewish. So, so I'm not technically ah, Jewish. Ah, okay, okay. okay. So it's just my, my. I think. I think the thing is, if it's it's a weird thing, isn't it? Because I haven't had the religion, but I've got the very worst side of it which is just the destruction mm. of a huge part of my family. So that's led me in part to this show, which does deal with the kind of oh, contemporary... We can talk about that. Yeah, yeah I'll talk about that a little bit later. I am a political comedian, but the interesting thing is that a lot of political comedians, I think, have a kind of radical or revolutionary stance, mm. whereas my political comedy is actually more about pragmatism and what is feasible and what is realistic. Yeah, so what do you think def defines Jewish humour? I mean, it can't just be the people that are telling the jokes or the people that write it. There must be some sort of line along there that defines Jewish humour. Well, if you look at the Yiddish language, it's uh, one of the interesting things about Yiddish is it's incredibly urban. So there's almost no vocabulary which is indigenous to Yiddish, which is unique to Yiddish. It borrows all its vocabulary for the countryside and for the pastoral from other languages. So I think Jewish humour is linked to the city, the big city and the smart guy or girl in the city. 
And having spent a lot of my life living in big cities, London and Berlin, two of the places I spent my life, they're both cities with a big tradition of this kind of sharp, witty, urban quick, hustle. Quick-witted. Quick but it's also, well. it's, also about, it's also a bit about the hustle, I think, and being kind of self-made and kind of keeping things going. So, yeah. f so it's, it's fast Jewish humour, I think. Yes. And it is often very self-deprecating, which is great, which is all to the good. But I think it's self-deprecating with a little sort of braggadocio in it as well, if that makes any sense. Yes, yeah. Have yeah. you done anything other than comedy or entertainment when you left school? And well, I've got I've got about five jobs now. I've never been able to make a living from comedy. Oh, if you're expecting to make a living in the entertainment business, <laughs> forget that one. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, I've done. I'm a, I'm a translator. I, I speak German and French. So right. I, and I have an MA in interpreting. But learning German also really opened up that kind of Yiddish culture to me because Yiddish is very similar to German. So it gave me a lot of access to, to stuff which was written in Yiddish and Yiddish music. And, well, it does take stuff. a lot of the language from the German with, with it, a smattering of Russian and other... And, and, and Hebrew, Hebrew. Yeah, yeah. And obviously the, alf the alphabet is different because yeah. it's the Hebrew. Well, it's the Hebrew alphabet, yeah. See London yeah. or something spelt with a Hebrew alphabet, you know, just... Yeah, I mean, Yiddish jokes often don't work written down for people for that no, reason. You know? No, that's absolutely right. Tell me a little bit about the Camden Fringe. When did that start? I'd never heard of it. I think it's been going about 15 years, the Camden Fringe. And it's really useful, the Camden Fringe, because I'm sure you've heard from other acts that Edinburgh is incredibly expensive oh, these days. Edinburgh, we know. I mean, it's just, it's just a kind of money hole. But the, the, the Camden Fringe offers artists who, who are developing stuff but aren't necessarily ready to make that big financial commitment for an Edinburgh run and are often based in London or near enough to London to get in. A chance to do things relatively low budget and get some reviewers in as well. Where is the Camden Fringe performed? I mean, is it a bit like Edinburgh where it's performed in lots of different venues around the Camden area or, or is it just one venue? It's all over the place. There's a couple of the most established comedy venues are taking part in it. I'm at the Camden Comedy Club, which is an excellent venue. Angel Comedy, they're also taking part. So a lot of the most established venues, it doesn't have as many venues as the, as the Edinburgh Fringe. It's just not as big yet. I think at the moment it's at a really nice size. Because not it too, is within the Camden Borough rather than all over London. Exactly. Not too big, not too small. When you get the Fringe brochure these days, the Edinburgh Fringe, mm. it's like getting the telephone directory oh. in the old days. And now the Camden Fringe, it looks like something you could feasibly actually see a bit of. And I, as I've got an artist pass, I'm definitely hoping to check out some, some of the other shows as well. As part and are the venues reasonably close to each other? I mean, I, I know I've been to Edinburgh Fringe and you book a show and then you think, I've got 20 minutes to get to the next one and, and it's a 40-minute run you know but you so you run like mad but you actually just make it in time i, th I think they're all relatively close relatively close so you can walk with them, walk them the show that you're performing is performed at the camden comedy club which is above the pub isn't it it is it is yeah it's a venue which has been there uh, a, a while yeah it's lovely it's a really lovely club what about your show tell me about the palace of earthly delights yeah Give the palace of earthly delights is a political comedy and it's a story and the story starts that I quit stand-up comedy because I have been involved in a scandal. I do not disclose what the scandal is to the audience. And a question the audience asks me a lot is, is the scandal real? Well, that's up to you to work out. But I get offered a gig in this story. And it ends up when I get to this gig that just about everybody who is anybody in the British political class is attending this club, which is known as the Palace of Earthly Delights. And then it all kind of goes haywire.
Have you had to change your show in light of the recent political changes within the Conservative Party? No, I mean, the great advantage of doing stand-up is you can be extraordinarily flexible with political comedy. And often if you've got the shape of a joke, which is about a particular politician, you can literally take one politician out and put another politician in. So I haven't had to change that because my original thesis, which was that the British political class has completely failed, seems to be proved in all circumstances (laughs) at the moment. So there is nothing which has occurred at the moment to alter that original thesis. That sounds good. That saved you a lot of time, of course, hasn't it? Yeah, it may be that the analysis is just basically sound, but I'd I'd quite like somebody to come along and disprove me because it's been a long while since I I saw anybody or anything in British politics which I felt was was admirable. I mean, we're going back nigh Bevan maybe before I see somebody who I'm like, well, that sounds like a good idea. How long does the show last? It's uh, 50 minutes. Yeah, 50-minute show. Which and, is similar uh, to, to The Fringe. Edinburgh yeah, it's, Fringe. I mean, the ambition for this show is to eventually perhaps take it to Edinburgh Fringe, but I was doing it last week at the Ventnor Fringe on the Isle of Wight, and I was delighted by the response. Because I, it is quite out there as a show. It's bizarre. It's, uh, it's obscene in a traditionally satirical way. Mm. It's grotesque. But it is also so far something people find very funny it's a platform isn't it it's a, it's a, it's a, do you write all your own material or do you draw from other people oh I've often used things which my family or people I know have said you know I no mean, other professional it, writers no I, I did once pay a friend of mine who's also at the Camden Fridge Dylan Dodds for a joke ten pounds because he, he, he you mean felt, you paid him for a joke I we paid, paid him for the, a joke for a joke he, he <laughs> ad-libbed a joke and we just talked about it I said well that'd be it perfectly in what I'm doing. How much do you want? He said £10 and I just gave him a <laughs> give 10 us, give But so far quid. that's the only... It's the going rate, right? <laughs> I'd, I'd agree with him a fiver, but you know, okay. was, the joke wasn't that good. <laughs> okay. Well, you haven't heard it yet. No, so. that's right. <laughs> Maybe I should have negotiated more. How and where can tickets be, be purchased? £7. You can purchase them online at the Camden Fringe website. I would imagine if you show up on the day, there will probably be something because it's a fairly large room. Right. But I book, I book them in advance. You can get a discount as well, five, £5 if you're a student or an OAP or whatever. Yeah. That's good. Okay, so we can see you perform your show, The Palace of Earthly Delights, on the 19th 20th of this month of August at the Camden Comedy Club which is above the Camden Head pub, that's what it is, and that's at 100 Camden High Street, Camden Town. I don't have their phone number, but if you look online for Camden Fringe... Yeah, and if you look on my Twitter, at James Harris now, the first tweet is a link to buy tickets, so... Excellent. James, thank you very much for coming and talking to us today. My pleasure. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. You're listening to Jewish Views in association with JW3, and with me now is David Siegel... And David, of course, you know all about travel, and apparently Israel travel has been magnificent recently. It's been growing and growing and growing. Why should that be, if that isn't a silly question? Clive, it, it, believe it or not, it's not, not an easy answer, but Israel is a big success story when it comes to tourism for a wide variety of reasons. Number one, it's always been and always will be supported by the Jewish community which means not only the community from London, but also from Paris, from Frankfurt, from Rome, from New York. They go to Israel because A, it's a great holiday destination, but deep down, it's a a place that 
they just want to be over and above possibly anywhere else and and when they go to Israel they get a, a feeling of being in a country which they feel is so different to anywhere else they love going to the Costa Brava they love going to Malta they love going to Greek islands but when it comes to Israel apart from the splendor of the place there's this extra buzz which you can't quantify you can't put your finger on it but I know it's there because I get it myself so it's still mainly a Jewish tourist who goes there rather than a in the, non-Jewish tourist no but in the first instance yes but thereafter more and more non-Jews are going to Israel for a wide variety of reasons principally Holy Land tours people who want to go and walk in the footsteps of Jesus huge market huge market from emerging nations come countries from Africa when I'm in Israel I'm seeing groups from Ghana I'm seeing groups from Nigeria I'm certainly seeing groups from China and Japan they come into Israel because it's an, a destination which is of enormous interest to them, not necessarily religiously only, but because Israel, for some reason, for such a small country, is always in the news. And many people go just to want to see the place for themselves. Now, many years ago, it was many years ago now, but nonetheless, I went on behalf of, I think it was LBC in those days, to Israel to do a sort of tourist program about it and I went to Israel for a fortnight and I have to say it was years ago I keep I must repeat that but nonetheless I was treated by some of the tourist people in Israel in a very strange way and uh, also quite funny on one occasion the man said to me I'll take you out to a really beautiful restaurant so I said I'd love to go and he said trouble is it's kosher if it weren't kosher I, I could take you to a lovely, lovely restaurant where you could eat everything you want. So I said, just for fun, I said, I, let's go to that one. And he said, oh, thank goodness, because now I can eat shellfish. So I said, I don't eat shellfish. And he said, oh, we all do that here. Now, I don't think that's the way for an Israeli to speak to someone doing a program about Israel I agree with it. for non-Jewish people. Audience. I agree with you entirely. It's it's a situation which they have there. They want many of them want to be extremely secular. Some of my own family are in exactly the same boat. And not so long ago, when I was out for a meeting that I had in Munich, and one of the people on our board was from Israel, and we went to a restaurant. I'm kosher, and when it came to the meal, he said to me, "There's kosher food and there's good food." I prefer good food. Same story. And this was a son of a Holocaust survivor who were very religious when they lived in Poland. That's how life is. But Israel is of great interest now for conferences, for incentive tours, for study tours, special interest groups, wedding parties. More and more weddings are taking place in Israel. In the old days, it may have been because of the fact that Israel was cheaper than doing it here in this country, but no longer now. And people are going for weddings, they're going for bar mitzvahs, there's massive medical congresses, dentistry, pharmaceutical, all over Israel, there are trade fairs, and it's bringing in a lot of people. And I'll tell you, Clive, that by chance, I was in Israel a few weeks ago, over the weekend of the Eurovision Song Contest, and thousands of non-Jewish people from all over Europe 
came to Israel purely to support the Eurovision. That is fair game. But I cannot believe that every single person wanted to cheer the guy from Sweden or the guy from Italy or the guy from Holland. They came because it was Israel and it's still a fascinating destination. It might interest you, make you even smile, that Tel Aviv today is a, a big destination for stag parties. Tallinn in Estonia have probably still got the crown, but Tel Aviv is not far behind. People go for long weekends because today four and a half hours is relatively a short flight and within easy reach. And people are doing it. And so long as the fairs are there and the hotels are there and the infrastructure is there, people will go. Why aren't them, is it made more public about Jerusalem in particular? Because I have to say that I think Jerusalem is without doubt one of the most marvellous cities I've ever been to. It's, it seems to... Uh, history is there and alive there. And it seems to be... Everything is still there, and it's, it's so exciting. It is indeed. Jerusalem is probably one of the great cities of the world. If you look closely at the map, you'll probably find it's almost in the center of the world, and people come there from all over the world. Now, there's been a shift of emphasis, Clive. In the old days, let's go back 10 years, people go and stay in Tel Aviv or Netanya and go to pop over to Jerusalem, so to speak, for the day. Not so anymore. Now they want to go and stay in, Israel, in Jerusalem for three or four nights. There's some very, very good hotels like the Waldorf, the Inbal, the New Orient Hotel, the King David, of course, one of the famous hotels of the world. They want to be in Jerusalem to take in the abstract atmosphere. Atmosphere is abstract. You can't put your finger on it. But you know, Clive and I know, it's there. It's absolutely there. It's quite interesting that a lot of people, when I went there, and as I said, it was a long time ago, there were a lot of non-Jewish people who were terribly interested in seeing some of the biblical spots in both the Old and the New Testament. The mix now is very, very multi-ethnic, very international. As I say, they're from all over the world. But I want to say this to you. If you come back from Israel, and this is where the sensitivity comes in, if you come back from Israel and so I've had a great trip it's been oh fantastic wonderful I said thanks for letting me know but when a non-Jew comes back from Israel and says Tel Aviv was great Jerusalem was awesome and Haifa was absolutely stunning it gives me a great extra piece of pleasure I can't again put my finger on it but you know Clive that it's there that's wonderful to know thank you very much indeed and time now for our rabbinic thought for the month. And this month comes from Rabbi Harvey Belofsky of Golders Green Synagogue. We find ourselves in the saddest period of the Jewish calendar, the three weeks. Leading from the fast of Tammuz, which marks the beginning of the destruction of the temples in Jerusalem in ancient times. It culminates in Tisha of the black fast of the ninth of Av, on which both temples were destroyed, the first in the Babylonian period, and the second in the Roman period. And during these three weeks, we refrain from wedding celebrations, live music, haircuts, and the morning becomes increasingly intense until the fast day right at the end. Sometimes these ideas are a little inaccessible in the modern world, particularly as we have the state of Israel and Jewish sovereignty once again in the land of Israel, our ancient homeland. I think to understand these ideas and give us some kind of perhaps a more contemporary relevance, it's worth considering that Jerusalem is really a composite word, Yerushalayim, two concepts, perhaps two ancient towns near to each other, which became one. The Shalem part, the second pit, is a place of focus between 
leaders in this world, a place where Abraham met the ancient king Melchizedek, where they formed a pact, where they shared their leadership and aspirations for the world. The Yuru part, Yureh, a place where God will be seen or God will be awed, is a place where Abraham almost sacrifices son Isaac and becomes a place of spiritual focus for all of humanity thereafter. So Jerusalem is a place in which man meets man, that's Shalem, and man meets God, Yeru. When they're brought together, it becomes an extraordinary locus of vertical and horizontal harmony, a place in which it's really possible for human beings to come together in the interest of all humankind, as well as reach out to God and God reach out to us. So at this time of the year, when we're wondering about the relevance of these ancient fast days, by focusing on the concept of Jerusalem, it's not hard to see that we are a fragmented world with disagreements, infighting and an inability to get on with each other. That is the Shalem part which Jerusalem could help us with. And the Yeru part, the ability to recognise our higher spiritual aspirations and bring them to the fore, Jerusalem has the capacity to do both of those. At this time of the year, as we fast and contemplate, it's an opportunity to recognise that there are ways of improving our fragmented world. First, we need to come together, and then we need to share our experiences as human beings in a divine aspiration. And may this year be the last of these three weeks, and next year may be all able to celebrate with our fellow human beings in a rebuilt Jerusalem. Thank you very much to Rabbi Harvey Belovsky from Golders Green United Synagogue for our thought for the month. And that's it for this rather summary edition of The Jewish Views. We've had a splendid day out here on the beachfront at JW3. Oh, do you mean Tel Aviv? I, of course I meant Tel Aviv, yes, absolutely. I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to d- uh, just, just uh, make anyone think otherwise. Yes, of course. Uh, had a marvellous day here on the beachfront at Tel Aviv. Was that convincing <laughs> enough? Uh, sounds it. Excellent. It'll do. Well, sadly, we are flat out of time, but we do have to thank all of our guests who have taken part in the programme today. Thank you very much to Natalie Berger and Itan Elford, who was telling us about what's coming up here at JW3 over the summer months. Thank you, of course, to Alexander Bermange. And if you want to go and see his show, I Wish My Life Were Like a Musical, that's on at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival throughout August. Thank you also to David Siegel of West End Travel telling us about tourism in Israel and the spike within it. And, of course, thank you to you at home for listening. And we must not forget to thank our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to this edition or, of course, any other edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk. And please do remember to subscribe to us in your podcast application. Right, I think we're going to go for a quick dip. So, from me, Phil Dave. And from me, Tony Honigberg. And me, Kate Fulton. And me, Clive Roslin. Do join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Bye-bye.